0: Just a quick note, we interviewed Jeff Lane in the upcoming episode and we interviewed Jeff on April 15th at the very beginning of the COVID crisis and we were unsure what was going to happen. We talked to Jeff and we agreed to release the episode after his museum reopened and is available for patrons. Please forgive anything that we mentioned month-wise, time-wise, as all of that may or may not have changed. Please enjoy.
1: Let's talk about cool cars.
0: Yeah, let's go ahead and start. Welcome, everybody, in this barrage of interviews that we're doing lately here on No Driving Gloves, getting a lot of people uh, through the microphones and, I guess, headphones. You have Sean briefly this morning, uh, and we have the privilege of having Jeff Lane, the owner and founder of the Lane Motor Museum in Nashville, Tennessee. I could give you a little spin and rundown of the Lane. It's a place I've been to many times. It's actually been a little over a year since the last time I visited. But it's, uh has some pretty unique, I'm going to use the word eccentric, very odd, odd cars that you're not used to seeing in the U.S. I'm going to pass it off to Jeff. To, why don't you give us like a one minute? Uh, synopsis of the museum, and then we'll get a little bit into it. So the, yeah, the math. museum
2: is uh, odd and unique. is kind of our, uh, I guess I would be call our tagline. So we have about 450 cars in the collection. They're predominantly European, um, although not exclusively, and we have a significant collection of micro cars. We have propeller-powered cars. We have amphibious cars. We have two-headed cars. That's kind of what we search for, is cars that people typically haven't seen anywhere else. We display about a hundred and twenty-five cars at one time, kind of depending on how our displays are set up. We also have about seventy-five motorcycles, seventy-five bicycles, and a couple airplanes. So that's that's kind of a broad brush overview.
0: See, I'm into the eclectic odd car stuff, and walking into your place, I can pretty much live with this collection because you have everything from. You know, bicycles and, like you said, airplane-powered cars to the gyroscopically controlled cars to, I mean, to really as mundane as a Dodge Viper. Right. It's, it's just an, a a nice selection and very well presented there. The getting into the, we will jump kind of into this. What created this? Did you all of a sudden walk out into your uh garage or barn one day and go, well, I got too many cars. I need to do something with this? Or did you wake up one morning and have an extra industrial building and go, hmm, I think I'm gonna make a museum and what am I going to yeah, yeah.
2: what am I going to put in? You know here? what kind of created it was my dad was a big MG T series fan growing up and and we restored MGs and, and went to MG meets all over the United States. So, you know, he was kind of into classic cars and he got me into classic cars, you know, so I had, uh, you know, my first car was MGTF that I put together, uh, restored before I was 16 and took my driver's training test. And so I kind of, it kind of starts really, <clears throat> really early in, in, you know, in my life. But if you fast forward to I was probably around 40 which would be about 20 years ago maybe a little bit earlier than that you know I started racing an SCCA when I turned 20 and I did that for like 10 or 15 years and then I kind of stopped doing that and and, and then I really kind of got into more interested in collecting cars and I started like with the BMW IZ Dodge power wagon and my MGTF and I had a couple other mGs fast forward a couple of years from that and I you know at I had about seventy-five cars in in a matter of a couple of years, so I had them stuffed in you know a couple of rental houses. Of course, you would never rent the garage, and had a couple of industrial buildings, and they were kind of scattered here and there. When I got you know I had like an Amphicar that you know that I drove around town and take to the lake, and of course people always saw that. And I bought a Tatra T eighty-seven, which I used to you know I would drive it drive it home sometimes and and uh, leave it in front of my house until, you know, every time you did that, we'd be eating dinner. So we'd pound it on your door, you know, what is that car? What is that car? You know, and my wife finally said, don't bring that car home anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, but, but you'd go to car shows and, and, you know, like there's usually a Saturday night dinner and you'd be sitting around and people would be saying, well, well, how many cars do you have? And I'd be like, well, 75. And they'd look at you like, Either you're crazy or they didn't believe you, right? Because, uh, you know, most collectors – Not how many cars have you owned.
1: Right. <laughs> like how many cars ha- – How many? not how many have you owned in your entire life? How many do you have
2: now? And you, you go back to oh,
1: 75. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Right.
2: <laughs> so people kind of – they look at you weird. In fact, you know, I used to think I could, could hire myself because a lot of times the guys would say, look, honey, I only got five. That's not that many, you know, right? I thought I could hire myself out as a role model for all these guys that want to increase the size of their collection, and and they were mostly weird, you know, European different cars. And so people kind of around Nashville, some people kind of got the vibe that I had these cars. And I had, I remember one time I had a guy that was my neighbor, and he came over and he said, "Oh, my son is a car nut, and he's turning twelve next Saturday." We know you got all these weird cars, and I was hoping for a birthday present. You could take them around and show them your cars. And I said, yeah, I'd be glad to do that. He said, I'd be glad to pay. And I said, no, 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 that's fine. I I mean, I'm I'm happy to do it. So I I had... At that time they were i had two five thousand square foot industrial buildings next to each other, and then there were cars scattered like at different rental houses and stuff and so you know they came over on Saturday morning and we went over there and he had it's funny he had these two instamatic cameras, twenty shots or something like that each right, so we're in the first building, maybe he didn't know there was other buildings and and he's shooting pictures like crazy, and I said. You better slow down, you know, because this is just one of the buildings. <laughs> you know, there's a building next door and then there's a couple other places we could go. And, but anyway, you know, had a great time and kind of started to think I either need to stop collecting, you know, not increase the number. Or I need to put these in one entity where they'll be all together and people can see them. And, you know, I like to drive my car. So I actually had, you know, when I got to about 50 cars, I hired a full-time mechanic to work on my cars so I could drive them. I mean, I'm mechanically inclined, and I worked on them some, but with that number of cars, I mean, I just didn't have the time, you know, to, to keep them keep them running and moving.
0: One time I had I had 13 cars in my collection, and that was the problem, is to keep them all running, and
2: and I, I couldn't right. afford to
0: hire a guy, so I ended up having to pare, pare down the collection. I can't even imagine... You know, really fifty or right. So anyway, cars. I just
2: decided. You know, maybe maybe what I should do is just do a museum. You know, I've got the, uh, I had the financial wherewithal, and I said, you know, at that point I was about forty five years old. I thought, you know, I'm young enough. Maybe I ought to go, go ahead and do it while I'm while I'm young, and I still got the energy and everything. And so that's and, and that's so that's that's why I did it. Uh, you know, I wanted the cars to be together and I wanted, you know, c- car collectors are different. Some people are very private. Uh, you know, you can look at my cars that don't pick, take pictures. I don't want, you know, I don't want the public in looking. Uh, and I understand it. But, I always, you know, I always wanted to share my cars with people. I want to be able to see them. And, and you know, I you know, we give rides in the Amphicar in the summertime to our members. You know, I mean, th- that's the kind of stuff. That I really enjoy doing is is having the cars move and having people being able to experience them, get rides in them occasionally, and things like that. You know, the museum was the perfect venue for that.
0: Well, you do display them uh, when I when I first uh, took a job at the Barber Museum twelve, thirteen years ago, whatever it is now. We kind of had the same deal that you do that you go into the museum and you know, there's not a lot of stanchions. There's a lot of
2: interaction
0: mm-hmm. with the exhibits and you know one of the nightmares of having a museum is touchy feely people that want to climb on stuff and look at stuff and my mem- facebook memories today is somebody put a sticker on one of the lotus at an event and i think 8 9 years ago you know why do people do that and ironically i was watching the old tv show how i met your mother last night it was an episode they were at a museum and The two of the characters are having this contest on who can touch the most and whatever, and they end up dressed up in the museum garb and clothing. And sometimes the general public can be horrible, but I kind of, you know, your museum, it kind of invites that, but it also everything seems to be obtainable. You have that at least when I was there last, which, like I said, was a little over a year ago. You had that Citron that you immediately invite people Mm -hmm. to sit in and touch and, you know, they can spend as much time with that. And I think that helps detract. And then you have a... Uh, wonderful little kids interaction area that kids can go play in in case you know they get bored and you know I'm, I I kind of have a familiarity with how <laughs> seven and eight year olds get and I think I think some of the stuff you've done is designed really well to keep that open environment and openly share things because you know people don't want the stanchions and the general public doesn't understand why stanchions are there but there's you know you've you've managed to in my opinion, somewhat control it. I'm sure as the, you know, managing director, you still have some headaches and some issues, but it's just, yeah, you know, you know, and
2: see. for us, I mean, we drive all our cars, so it's, you know, we don't have $10 million perfect, whatever, you know, alpha or whatever you want to type cars. And, 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 we're, and we don't want, we don't want people to walk by with their belt buckle and scratch it and stuff like that, you know? So, you know, we try to monitor it and, you know, with the public, right? 95% of the people are really nice. And really care and then there's always that five percent that you have to kind of treat them like children and say we had I had one guy who was out there in, on the floor one day and we have a sign that says you please look take pictures but don't touch except for the car you can sit in the, the picture car but he was sitting in the cars and I went over to him and said, you know he's was open the door getting in the car I said, you're not supposed to touch the cars and he said, but it doesn't say you can't sit in them and, you know, you got to explain to them, well, you can't get in the car without <laughs> touching the door, even if you climb over, right? You're still touching the oh car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there's always, you know, those people, yeah. it's like, where did you get your comments set? So, but, you know, overall, we haven't had any major issues. I'm glad you have not it, it, it goes back
1: to, I used to do a lot of product expert work for, for a bunch of brands and it got to a point back, I think it was back in the 90s, where we literally started having to remove shift knobs and remove radio buttons and knobs and, and anything that could be taken off the car. We literally, on a, a car show floor, we either had to make sure that it was glued down or remove it or it was going to walk away. And the fact that your your collection is is as open as it is I think speaks volumes to the people that are coming through your door and how you have have fostered that relationship with your guests. I mean, it's, it's really cool to see that the cars, even though obviously you don't want people to touch them, they still feel accessible. Right. It's, it's been a long so time since I've been in there, but it, it's not a stuffy museum environment that you've created. It's, it's literally walk up and take a look. And, and that's that's cool. That's really cool to see
2: yeah and with that too peop- you know people say they can see inside you know a lot of cars if they're roped off, you can't kind of you can't see the dash, you can't see the interior too well and you know a lot of times you can you know some museums you can't really walk around the car, so if you want to view it from the side or the back or something you're you know, you do not have that opportunity.
0: You started this collection, you hired them the mechanics so that you could drive them, and you know you still drive just about everything in the museum, you lend things out. And it's one thing that I wanted to touch on, and I wanted to touch on it while Sean was still with us. You do an event every year, and I think I learned about it, what Sean and I were discussing, and I think I learned about it 10 or maybe 11 years ago when you first did it, right. uh, the Rally for the Lane, which I don't know if any other museum does. Now, unfortunately, it's become so popular, I think it sells out within minutes of your announcement. You know, the first couple of years, you had a week or two to... Uh, take advantage of this, and that's where you provide a list of a lot of dream cars, odd cars, unobtainable cars in this country, and for just a couple hundred bucks, maybe a thousand dollars, you go on a rally and you let your museum's patrons, your members, drive and operate your cars, which is (laughs) somebody... I have a large museum background, uh, museum conservation background. And I've heard a lot of museums, you know, the Barber Museum even says everything in there is drivable. And there's always exceptions to that rule. And even the stuff that's drivable has little quirks. But I think opening your museum the way you do in the cars, you're putting cars out there and letting people drive them. And you have to have confidence they work and they're they're reliable. And it really speaks volumes to to what you have in your collection and how it's managed. And I mean, I, I look at the list every year and anymore I'm too late. And, you know, I'm not, unfortunately, I you know, you'll be mad at me. I'm not a member or anything, so it doesn't help. And I'm not a previous participant in the rally. Um, I never can get an opportunity to jump in anymore. But I mean, some of the stuff on this list is, you know, things I, if I get a chance, I'm going to, going to buy yeah. a place yeah. to drive. And,
2: one, you so. know, part of what we believe is, you know, it, it's about education and experience, right? And, and what better way to experience a car than be able to drive it right i mean it's great to look at it and read about it and learn about it but the ultimate to, to me the ultimate education is, is the opportunity to drive the car and great event and we love doing it and i know that it's you know people have said why don't you know when we do two weekends why don't you do three or four but it's you know it's a lot of work just decided that two is really about all we can handle logistically so
0: I mean, you're doing two weekends and what are you running 20 25? Right, cars? we do I we, count yeah, we usually do 25. I mean, I, I, and I'm sure you spend weeks and weeks prior to that having the mechanics go through them and make sure they're workable and then after it you spend weeks repairing anything that might happen, a, a leak that developed or, you know, ignition problem or any of the little stuff that may occur on a rally and utilizing 40, 50, 60-year-old cars or one-offs or two-offs, it's just, you know, the fact that you're, and Sean and I both jumped and kind of said, this might be one of the top cars, I mean, but you have two mm-hmm, Renault right. or five turbos, and I think that's that's a, that's a dream car for a lot of people, you know, Sean and I are both late 40s, uh, it's kind of a dream car mm-hmm. for our generation, and it's it's fun, and I know the first year you did it, you only had the black one, and you know this year i noticed you had two added to the list a white and a black one so obviously that must appear to be a very popular car or, yeah you know, somebody donated or a, a yeah, white one came it, it, along. yeah it is just, a popular
2: <laughs> car and we, we, we we've always had two the white one it, the the engine blew up like 15 years ago and we never repaired it and we finally you know the, the rally we always talk to people you know what you know what cars do you want and uh, everybody's always saying, oh, I've been trying to get the R5 turbo for, like, five years. So we finally put the effort into rebuilding the engine and getting that car back on the road. So we now have two, and hopefully most most people will get a chance at it. But there, I've got a funny R5 turbo story for you. I, I, I took the black one to a rally in Texas, like, uh, I think about three years ago. And it was down near the Mexican border, West Texas. And when you come back, I never experienced this before, but going down is no problem. But when you're coming back, even though you're in the U.S., I think if you're less than 50 miles from the border, they have, like, different checkpoints. And they stop you and they ask you what you're doing and everything. And so I pull up with R5 Turbo. And, you know, it's like a tent in the middle of nowhere right and there's like a dog and there's like three agents out there and so this young guy comes over and he says oh what are you doing well i'm on this rally you know and well where do you live And you know i said well i live in nashville tennessee and then apparently the supervisor i think with the dog he sees the car and he comes running over there and he goes oh you know what this is and i said yeah it's r5 He goes oh this is my favorite car when i was growing up i've never seen one in my whole life you know he's going crazy you know and that was the end of the questioning i talked to him for five minutes and he's like i'm a, you're out of here so good to go
0: so what border crossing was that so that when it, i want to you know, bring so my it wasn't r5 actually, in from it isn't mexico actually a border crossing
2: <laughs> it's when you're within 50 miles of the border and you're coming north they just they have different different days they do different roads so you're not really going from mexico to texas you're in texas but it's 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 like a spot check thing i guess you know but yeah r5 turbo great car
1: I'm looking at the list that you've got, the current list for the for the rally uh-huh. that's on the website, and we'll we'll share that list on No Driving Gloves. Just I would have a very hard time deciding. Like the R5 is definitely on the top of the list, but I used to have a '73 Bavaria, so you have my attention there. <laughs> I'm looking at the Alfa Romeo Sport Zagato. Oh, oh, that's so pretty. The autozam is amazing I just don't think that my big self my in my current peak of human fitness would fit in an autozam it's a tiny car um, it's just it's an amazing just collection of, of, of cool <laughs> you know it's like how do you how do you pick the cars that you're gonna take out on the rally and are they in a rotation kind of thing or is it kind of the same cars for most of them
2: or how What's the process there? The process is, so we kind of, you know, we got some cr- criteria. One is that, you know, we do 150 miles a day, so 75 in the morning, 75 in the afternoon. So it's got to be able to do that kind of distance, right? It's got to be reasonably reliable. We don't want stuff that breaks down like crazy because then we have to replace cars. It has to be, I mean, safe's a relative word, right, because we do two CVs. But, you know, we've had some people that wanted old Fiat 500s, which are an absolutely tiny car, mm. Uh, so we've kind of said no we're, we're you know that's kind of a, a, a you know below our line and it has to it has to be able to go 55 miles an hour you know we've had people that wanted to do some slower right. like micro cars like a bmw I Z, which realistically will go 45 and then you hit any kind of hill you're down to 30 so that's kind of the criteria right. that's kind of the criteria we use you know people can make suggestions um, and we also don't do Like the Dodge Viper, you know, we don't do really high performance, super fast cars. Not that we have very many of those, but we have a few. So we're kind of avoiding that because we're always, you know, concerned about somebody getting in over their head.
0: That's easy to do in a Viper, but high performance, super fast, and well, you do have an Evora, you do have the R5. You, I mean, you do have some stuff that's definitely fun and right. and can yeah. get out of yep. its own mm-hmm. way, we'll
1: say. So. And I, I have to go ahead and throw this out there. Add the uh, the ninety eight Multipla, and John and I'll split it and come up and cover the rally for you. <laughs> um, what in the world? Like this, I, I look through your collection and it's. Quite possibly the only museum collection that I've ever seen that speaks to me, (laughs) like truly speaks to me. You're a weirdo then. How do I'm totally a weirdo when it comes to – I am literally – I call myself fat guy in a little car. I like tiny, nimble cars. All of your Fiats and your Citroens and and all that stuff and the Renault R5 and you've got the Renault Spider. And then I look through the collection and there's a Fiat Multipla and a Fiat Panda. Mm Mm-hmm. Which I find amazingly cool just because we can't get them in this country, but what in the world uh, possessed you to put a Fiat Multipla, which is quite honestly considered by most of the planet Earth as is, is maybe the ugliest car ever built, but
2: I, I find it cool. Yeah. How's that yeah. end up in a in a museum? It's just it's so cool to see stuff like that. Well, part of it is, you know, we have an old multipa from the sixties, you know, when, when Fiat initially did the Multipa, um, uh, which is a fantastic Which actually is
1: a really good looking car. Yeah, yeah. It's a, yeah,
2: and it and it's a fantastically engineered, designed, executed uh type of car. And so, you know, they stopped making the multiple for a period of time. And so we said, you know, to, to kind of tell the story we want the newer Multipa to show how they, you know, how they went from the, from the older one to the newer one. And and I know the the styling on the, the, that car, I mean, I like the styling. I think it's neat, uh, but I, I understand people can look at it and say that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. I mean, I, I, I see that. I wouldn't say that, but I can see how you could say that. I just think it's cool
1: from an engineering standpoint. You just like how, and it fascinates me to stand there and look at that car and then, Try to imagine the engineers that were designing that mm-hmm. and and what their thought process was. That's what gets me going. It's like, how in the world? Why? Why would you do that? And then you just stand there and look at it for a while. And you're like, OK, that makes sense. And it's crazy. It's yeah. totally crazy.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's. I mean, it's it's a great car. But it's kind of it's, it's a continuation of the story, which melds in with the exhibit that we have now that actually is just going to is going to stop here pretty soon but it's what's called then and now so it's like the old mini and the new mini the old multipa, the new multipa, the old fiat 500 the new fiat 500 which is kind of a you know people think of a mini and i mean i've had people say i had some friends that said i'm thinking about buying an old mini you know and they were a, a couple and they were you know pretty good sized couple and i said you know you ought to come over and sit in our old mini Before you go buy one, because they're pretty small and because, you know, they're used to a new mini. So they got in there and they're like, we're shoulder to shoulder, you know, against the doors and against each other. I mean, they're like, this thing is tiny. and I'm like, yeah, it's tiny. (laughs) So, you know, they kind of show people how (laughs) cars have grown.
0: And that was one of the exhibits I was going to mention. It goes back to you have some great models, and, and I love your cutaway engine displays. And you have, I want to say, you have a little inline four-cylinder uh, open model thing in one of your display cases. And I'm fortunate enough to have the the same one. It's, uh love it when things in my collection I see in museums. I go, well, that must be <laughs> important and all my hoarding to have kept, kept that. Yeah. But you're doing, you know, this then and now, and it is an exhibit that I wanted to come visit and, you know, here, oh, I'll do it next week and I'll do it next weekend. And unfortunately, I think I'm going to miss it and I'll just have to go in and put it together myself, find the mini in one area and the mini in the other area and the Porsches or however you have it set up. Of course, you have the, the one of your highlight photos on the website is, you know, a new nine eleven and an old, older nine eleven, like a 70s era nine mm-hmm. eleven, maybe in the 80s, late mid 80s. Yep. And I'm going, ooh, now I want then-and-now technology because I have I had the fortune to, uh, say, restore a Lotus Mark 10 that had a pre-selector transmission in it. And one of the things I say about the pre-selector, it's nothing less than what the Porsche PDK is except Porsche got to cheat and use computers because the new PDK is a pre-selector transmission. And as your quote on the website from Mark Twain is, there's no such thing as a new idea uh-huh. – I've said that for years about cars is, you know, it was thought of in the beginning of automobiles. I mean, the electric car was, if Derek was here, he talks a lot about electric cars and the early electric cars and dual overhead cams and, you know, strange valve trains. And like I said, the transmissions. And we're just figuring out now when we now have the technology to be able to implement those things. And it's just, you know, it's one of those little crazy ideas I had that, you know, then and now is... A neat idea, and especially to learn how small cars were. I mean, it's even amazing how small cars were, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, especially in the full-size trucks. Right, yeah. Where the new mini Ford Ranger is as big as an F-150 was in 05, Mm -hmm. so... I've looked at, looked at the events and I know what we're going through and we're trying not to focus a lot on, you know, this virus thing that's going on because we like our shows to be a little bit more evergreen. You have, you know, a lot of exhibits and special events and you've obviously added the vault tours, um, which is I think all the museums have done now that the Peterson proved that people want to see what's behind the scenes. Right. Uh, when I visited, you had the one of the side buildings open and loved to wander through that and Then how I came to reach out to you for this interview is you guys have been posting like crazy or your uh, what a marketing person has been posting like crazy Instagram photos and things, and one of the Instagram photos was the basement and i didn't even realize there was a basement to the place and and then of course, you have the the military vehicle hidden outside and Maybe you can or can't say, but you. one of the Instagram photos said you were out acquiring something a few weeks ago, and it was very secretive. And I think I threw out that you were getting one of those little UFO houses because <laughs> that would seem like a eccentric thing that, that, that you would have and would be a neat thing to set in front or behind the museum. If you have
1: one of those UFO houses, the next time my wife and I come to Nashville, we will rent that. Instead of I, a uh, room, I, I don't have one actually, <laughs> but get, get one okay. It does fit in with the collection in a okay. big way, man. Right. That's that, right. that would be cool. Yeah. The, the Lane bed and breakfast, <laughs> absolutely. There you go, yeah. That thing would never be vacant.
0: What are some of the things you have in store or right around the corner for you, or kind of are thinking through your head because I'm sure there's a Rethinking of events, and well, some are planned out, and you you know, you have the cars borrowed and things like that. You can't change. But what are some of the things that are on the calendar, and when we all can get out of the house and race away? You know, I might wait a week or two to even release this episode so that it's fresh in people's minds as you know. Hopefully, freedom occurs here in the next two or three weeks. But uh, what what's the lane have in store that you know? we do about four
2: exhibits per year, and we usually kind of. Uh, March, April, early May is when we do our change, although we change individual cars kind of throughout the year. But uh, because of what's going on, you know, our change is going to be delayed. I mean, it was supposed to kind of happen this month. Obviously, it's not. But we're doing so we're doing an exhibit on women's suffrage because this will be the 100th anniversary of women getting the right to vote in Tennessee uh in in 1920 2020 so that's an exhibit we have a model t we have a couple of small micro cars that were advertised as second cars take your car to the grocery store when your husband's at work type thing uh we're also doing an exhibit on you know i i we, we have a bunch of propeller powered cars propeller powered bicycles propeller powered boats propeller powered ice sleds which we you know exhibit a few here and there and you know like maybe six months ago when we're starting to come up with new exhibits for this year, I was wandering around and said, you know, we have about four, I think it's 14 propeller powered vehicles that are, you know, some are in the basement and some are on display, right? But they're kind of scattered. So I think people don't get the uh, enormous, not the enormous, but the totality of it. So we're going to put those all together for the first time to do a propeller powered exhibit. That's another exhibit. And we're also doing a, what we call a stacking exhibit. So, we're going to stack five vehicles on top of each other so we have a tatra rollback and then on top of that will be a Citroen tissier which is like a flatbed car hauler and then on that we have like think, i think it's a 34 goliath truck and then a subaru 360 uh, van and then one of our micro cars on top of that so we thought that would be a crazy you know type thing to do um and there's a couple more exhibits that if you look on the website uh they'll they'll be on there the only the the opening dates aren't going to be correct because until we get back to work we didn't really want to like keep saying okay we're changing the dates we're changing the dates once we get back to work then we'll say okay now what are the new opening dates that'll be updated as soon as we can
0: some of those sound interesting when you uh, assemble the stack display do you like put the uh Micro car on the Subaru 360, and then load that, and load that, or did you actually? Are you going to cheat and use a crane? Uh,
2: you know, we don't have, we don't, we don't have a crane, so you know, we haven't actually. I mean, we haven't done it yet. It's got to be done in the museum (laughs) because it'll be 19 feet high, and our door going into the museum, I believe, is 14. But we'll we'll probably do it the way you do: is put the put the small car, you know, put the micro car on the van, (laughs) then put the van on the Goliath, then you know, continue to. you know do it that way but we haven't actually done it yet but we well, we do have a chain we have a chain fall i guess if we need to do that to get it stacked up
0: i was gonna say that's something i'd love to see a video of or watch but i also have been there when uh, you try to assemble some of that stuff and it takes eight times as eight times the time you thought yeah. it would and you say a few words that can't be said on television <laughs> so
1: here's, here's how you get by that though you set up a time-lapse camera And that way the the audio is not really there.
2: Right. (laughs) You can say whatever you want to say. We've done some projects like that. We're like a deer type camera, right? So, you know, as we're storing a car and then every time you walk by, it takes a picture and you end up with thousands of kind of pictures, which is a nice historical thing to have. So we have done that with everything. It's it's awesome.
0: Let's get into, or I want to touch on now, you're Jeff Lane and you've been on every, you know, you've been on Leno and... You know, just all, all these TV shows and, you know, all, you get all these questions that we've asked you for the last, you know, half hour, 40 minutes. What's the question you wish somebody would ask you that you've never been asked? Uh, you know, I have questions, people, when I represent Lotus and things like that. Nobody ever asks me this. But what's a question you think people should ask and you're surprised they don't ask you either about you or the museum or your Yeah, you know, I...
2: Or, I, I... Uh, I don't know that there's a question that hasn't been asked. You know, the the thing I try to portray to people because sometimes, you know, people come to the museum and they'll they'll look at you kind of like you're some kind of god or something, right? Oh, I saw you on TV, and I'm I, I'm just a regular car nut, right? I'm probably more eccentric car nut than a lot of people, but I'm I'm not different from most other people that you know. I I enjoy cars. I enjoy working on them. I enjoy driving them. I enjoy learning about them. I think. The majority of my life is pretty normal. When, when people sometimes I think they, they think that you know there's some kind of pedestal they should put you on, which I don't. Kind of uncomfortable with that.
0: But the, you know, there's no little odd Jeff Lane little thing. Uh, you know, you said deer cameras, so you obviously hunt or something. Maybe as another hobby. Yeah, no, am not. Uh, you know, deer cameras don't <laughs> don't pop
2: into my. What are head you passionate time,
1: about but... outside the museum? Like it's what, or or is the museum, or, or is the is the automotive, the vehicular, is that the all-consuming for you?
2: Well, just it's out of it's pretty consuming, but I have you know, I'm I'm a I'm an avid bicyclist. I like to do triathlons, um, so, you know, the sprint, the short triathlons, and I enjoy doing that because it's kind of a the thing about running a museum is you're kind of known as the car guy, which is that, that's okay. I'm not that's not bad, but you know, you, you want to not always be known as the car guy maybe sometimes right so and, and you do triathlons it's kind of a pretty different group of people so it, it gives you some variety in your life and so i do that and you know I, I i like to travel which is work work is mostly travel but you know it's, it's a lot of fun too but i enjoy it generally when i'm traveling it's you know i'm doing car stuff or doing doing other business stuff but but it's still fun um and i like to read it but you know besides that i don't I mean, I don't have, you know, a lot of people say you should learn to play golf. And you know, I, I like to ride my jet ski on nice days, stuff like that. But but I don't have a ton of extra time, really. I'm not, I'm not retired yet. So that kind of fills me right. up. Yeah.
1: When you're out traveling, I know I do this. Whenever I'm flying into anywhere in Europe or the UK, as we're descending into whatever airport it is, the first thing I do is look out the airplane window and I'm I'm looking at cars either in parking lots or on the ground going can't get that can't get that I really wish we had that in the states look <laughs> do, do, do you find yourself doing that like I literally I'm so happy to get into another country and then just start looking around at going I'd have that car, that car, that car, that car, that car. Is it something you do, or, or am I alone in my madness when it comes to that?
2: I do it all the time. I'm, I'm exactly like okay, you. I'm cool. in the airport looking around Thank at cars so driving around, and I'm like, oh, what is you know what is that? I don't know what that is. I don't know. My girlfriend, if you know, we're out uh, driving in Europe, and she likes to drive, so she drives a bunch. And she's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm looking at the cars going by, you know. So, uh, yeah, I'm exactly it's
1: like that. Totally, it. Yep.
2: Yeah. I I accosted a guy in the middle of
1: London. We were in the Soho district in London and we're just, it was my wife, my mother-in-law and myself. And we're walking along, we're going to a show actually. And this guy pulls up in a bright yellow with red leather interior, Marcos roadster. And it was a, it was epic. (laughs) It was just absolutely (laughs) epic. And I ran, like I ran over to the car and, and I'm like, do you mind? Can I take some pictures? And, the guy, like, he, I know he heard the accent, and he's like, "the stupid American. But I was literally like, this car doesn't exist. In in my regular world, it doesn't exist, and I can't believe I'm seeing it. And he was, ki- was kind of nice, but at the same time, I, I think he thought I was going to rip him out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> I have more car-struck moments than I have, like, star-struck moments. Like, I literally will be like, "I this is a car that I've wanted forever, and I'm looking at. I've been looking through the the website, the the Lane Museum website, as we're doing this interview, and I don't have to leave now. I got a message, and my my meeting's been pushed. So you're gonna have to put up with crazy Sean for <laughs> <a minute. laughs> looking through your website. Your Renault coll- your Renault collection mm-hmm. is insane.
2: Yeah, I like totally Renault. insane yeah. mm-hmm.
1: in the best way. It's insane. I'm looking at a, at an time mm-hmm. and Spas, and then. You get to the Clio V6, <gasps> the Williams Clio. Oh, my God. And then you have you actually have a McGann Renault Sport F1.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The Renault, uh, the Megane? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you ever hear the the UK-based commercial when the, when the new design Big Butt McGann came out? uh uh-uh. No, uh-uh. There was a song that was out for a while. It, when that came out, it was, I see you, baby, shaking that ass. You ever? I don't know if you've ever heard that song or not, but literally Renault, Renault had that song in the commercial for that car. And we were over in the UK at my mother-in-law's house, and that commercial came on TV. And I, it's like 2007, every time I see one, think about it, I just bust out laughing. I <laughs> need to at least sit in that car so bad. Yeah, your collection is making me geek out car guy-wise,
2: and I'm not even there right now it's just really cool really really cool I, I I talk to your point about you know stopping in gas stations and looking at cars and I mean I do that too all the time too and I only speak English so I'm you know when I'm in Europe I'm but of course in England I'm fine but everywhere else I'm pretty pretty handicapped but I was in Czech Republic one time traveling and stopped in this gas station in the middle of nowhere and this guy had this a Wartburg which is an east german two-stroke car but it, it wasn't a regular Wartburg you could see that he had like hopped it up he had the hood open because he was checking something and, something and i went over and looked at it and it, he must have been like a master craftsman or something because everything he did to the to the modifications to the engine everything were perfect i mean thing, thing looked spectacular and of course he didn't know a word of english right because i'm saying oh it's a really nice car i really love this thing and you know, he's kind of looking at me like weirdo type of thing. But I thought, well, I'll give him my card, you know, right? And I, I said, if you ever want to get rid of it, you know, I don't know if he understood that, but I gave him my card. Of course, I never did hear from him, but, uh, you know, it was one of those same gas station type deals.
1: <laughs> so, Come to find out that gentleman actually was British. And uh, he, was, he just didn't want to get rid of his car. That's oh, what I mean. yeah. He was looking at you like, no, I don't speak a word. Uh, <laughs> and he actually probably, was, probably was fluent. He's like, no, no, go away. It's not for sale. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. The passion that we have for, for all things mechanical is definitely universal. That's, that's really cool.
0: And as Sean says, you know, we're poking around the website a little bit in that. And you do something that I find extraordinarily nice, and I think more and more museums are doing it, and that you pretty much have your entire collection visible on the website. A little picture, a brief description, and, you know, which is wonderful because it's also disappointing because, oh, I want to see that and, you know, go when it's in the warehouse right. or not on display or something. But you also have in it the, the Lane Motor Museum... Um, book or the book about
2: the, museum yeah
0: the vehicles tell us a little bit about the book and you know it says it's a series it's the first book in a series in a volume one and there's 50 cars and you've said you have 500 right so is this going to be a 10 volume series and limited edition so if i don't buy this one and i decide to buy book six i should have them i'm going to spend a bunch well, of time we've on always eBay had
2: or... people come to the museum and they they're always saying do you have a book about the museum because you know we like what you have but it's hard to find stuff about these unique cars. And so we've talked about it for years about doing a book. And we finally, you know, it took us four. This book just came out three weeks ago. It's our first one. It took us four years to do this one. You know, our goal is, uh, you know, we knew we couldn't do all the cars at once because that would just be too big a book. It would take too long. It'd be way too expensive and everything. So our goal is about every five years to do another 50 cars. Um, you know, we're not going to. With 500 cars, I mean, we're, we're not going to cover every single car in the collection. I mean, with this book, we tried to pick the 50 most unique cars we have, at, You know, and that's a very opinionated thing, right? So the next one, we'll pick 50 more unique. I mean, the, the gyro didn't get in this book because – When we started the book, uh, the gyro was still in the restoration shop. It wasn't done yet. So it'll be, you know, that's one car. People would say, how come that's not in the book? Well, that'll that'll be in the next one. So, you know, how many volumes are there going to be? You know, I mean, if we probably did 300 of the collection, two to 300, that would probably cover, you know, because we have a lot of two CVs and a lot of two CV variants. And, you know, we wouldn't want to, we're not going to cover every two CV variant we have you know, type of thing. We printed 3,500 copies of this book. So, which is a lot thing is when the next one comes out, we'll still have some of the first, you know, the first edition, but not first edition, but I guess we're not really calling it volume one or saying it's the first of a series or something like that, but, and we could have it reprinted if it sells out, you know, so it's not, you know, again, it's an educational tool. And it's interesting when we did the book, is we had Ken Gross, you know, who likes the museum and agreed to do the writing, and when he started to get into it, he said, "You know, there's a lot of cars here. I can't find anything about." it Speaks to some of the uniqueness or weirdness of of some of them. But so that's that's what's going on with the book.
0: I'm just curious because, like I said, I I saw and I I knew it had recently released. Again, it's one of those ideas that nice to go home with something you know I visited the Harley Davidson museum a few years ago and I'm not a motorcycle guy but I had to buy the book on the museum and it's you never know what you missed or, right you know it's got a couple extra stories in it and you know your description says it tells a little bit you know about the history of you know the lane and the lane family a little bit and some of the stuff that hopefully we brought out a little bit on the podcast here mm-hmm. and you know I'm going through and I'm thinking of some of the stuff in the museum and y you, you know, you have the occasional replica, I don't want to say a lot of replicas, but you you know, you've got replicas and you know, it's tough to get some of the you know, the real cars and are these things that you are you've I'm gonna say they're somebody else's project that you've come across and, you know, they ran out of steam on, or are these things that you know, I'm thinking uh, the Dymaxion replica that you have. Um, I was involved when, 20 years ago. I was working with a metal guy. He did a lot of the aluminum work on the Dymaxion house. It's on display at the Henry okay, Ford. Yeah. He was with the restoration shop. I was with. You know, did you commission this car or was this somebody else's project that you, you know, stumbled across and you go, oh, yeah, I'll get that and I'll finish it or, you know, how, how, how do you choose the replicas or are, are they things you're, I guess my question is, they things you're commissioning or are they things you
2: come across or are they both? Yeah, or? no, they're thing, they're things we're doing. The Dymaxion was kind of a, you know, I always liked the Dymaxion because of the story and I'm always interested in unique aerodynamic cars and cars that kind of feature a lot of different. Attributes that they thought were better ideas that maybe weren't that 's propeller power cars are part of that, but the Dymaxine started out it's interesting. A friend of mine named John Long who lived uh in Toronto at the time he lives in California now, but he was interested in doing a Dymaxine replica, and he did a bunch of research, he wrote a book, uh, he kind of compounded all the research into a book, and got together one time, and he said, "You know, I want to do a Dymaxine replica." And I think if we did three, it'll be a lot cheaper, right? The first one is super expensive. And then two and three, not that they're cheap, but obviously, you know, it'll be it'll be a lot less, a lot more cost effective. I'm like, that's a great idea. I'm, you know, I'm all for, it. you know, he wanted me to try to find a third person. And I looked around and we couldn't find anybody else that was really interested. And then, and then he dropped out. He said, you know, I really want to do it, but. You know, now I've decided I don't want to do it. But, you know, I was still interested. in so we, what we did is we took all his research and did some additional research. We built the chassis in, in our shop, um, got a Ford flathead V8 and an old Ford frame and used all that. And then we, had, we shipped the running chassis to uh, Ikora in the Czech Republic, who does mostly Tatra restorations. But they, they do a lot of other things, and they're great metal people. And so they built the body on the car. And that's kind of, and the reason we built a replica was, you know, there's really only the one original that's in Reno, which, you know, has not run in, I don't know how long, decades, decades, decades. And uh, now there's another replica that uh, Lord Norman Foster built. Um, he actually finishes before we finished ours. Cause he, he had uh, people in England do it. But, you know, my thing is Reno is never going to get rid of theirs. And it's a really neat, uh, interesting car. And if we build a replica, then people can see it and we can drive it around. And, it, and it, you know, that's the thing about a museum is it keeps the stories alive because you have the, you know, this, I guess you can say maybe this is not an artifact, but, you know, but it's, you can take it out and people can see it and they can get interested in it. You know, if it's stuff, stuff that gets hidden away and never gets seen and, and, and never goes around, I mean, eventually it's going to disappear and the story's going to disappear. So that's usually when we do a replica, it's because... The original either. I mean, there's some cars the original are, are there was maybe an original and it's long gone you know, or maybe there was only one and it's in a museum that's never going to leave. Right. The only way you're going to have one is to build a replica.
0: Totally in agreement. You know, I, I've always again, I'm jumping back to the Barber Museum, but a lot of museums like that, they have a lot of replicas because they are things that you need to tell a mm-hmm. story And you can't tell the story without that piece. And like you said, there's only one surviving dumb axiom. They only built three of them. So there's only been four ever really constructed. And you're never going to get it out of, you know, the the National Automobile Collection. It's, you know, I assume Bill Hara bought it and, and, you know, it's never going to go right. anywhere. Uh, obviously, they chose to keep it when they auctioned off all of Harrah's stuff. So it has its significance. And I guess I like the little the aero cars and things like that. Also, I, I was involved at one point with the a portion of a stout scarab that was being restored and has been featured in a lot of books and such. And just a lot of that 30s thinking and, you know, basically they're building round minivans at the time. And it's uh, just a good creative. I think there were a lot of ideas in the 30s and the car was finding its path. And and I say just glad to see it. It was, you know, it's another one of those interesting things in the collection. We're going to wind up here, but I've got to ask you the one question that everybody asks you, but I'll ask it in a different Mm way. What are your top three favorite vehicles? Because I know you can't... They're all like children. You can't (laughs) choose your, your favorite. But let's say god forbid you know the the place burned down and that mm-hmm. what what three cars are you rushing in to, 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 save. to save and that's are, a are, really
2: <laughs> tough one because i uh, you know i one of the things i tell people and uh, i think dale waxler uh kind of made this up he's, when you ask him what his favorite motorcycle is he says it's the last one i rode and, and i would say that same thing is what you know i appreciate every car for what it represents or maybe what it doesn't represent sometimes right but if i had to pick three of course i'd pick my MGTF that i Built as a kid, took my driver's training test in, still have. So that's, I've got a, it's not a special, the TF to me is not a special, special car, but it, you know, it's, to me, it's an emotional attachment, right? And that's, I mean, that's what cars are, is people are emotionally attached. So I pick that one. I think I'd pick a, the old Fiat 500. I think that's just a great design. Uh, it's a great driving car. Super, super well executed. You know, I, you know, I, I like Lotus a lot, and I really like the Lotus. I mean, I like all Lotuses, right? But I really like the Lotus Elan. I think it was just a just a spectacular execution of a great handling, perfectly powered car. That's what I, I picked those three today. As I tell some people, come back and ask me in a couple of weeks, <laughs> I might give you three different ones.
1: We'll call you back in a half hour and see where they're <laughs> Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: Which generation of a Because I knew you had the Elise and the Avora, and I'm trying to click Wait, through to try to catch a, up. I
2: guess you've got it's a 73, so it'd be would be a Mark three or Mark four. I'm not. Yeah,
0: it's 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 still kind of the original design. It's a 70. A so okay. It's a 70. Okay, it is yeah. a Mark Mark Mark, Mark 3, three. So. Yeah. I, you know, I wasn't sure if we were getting up to the M100 along. No, 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 or the, And then, of course, you've got a race car there, too. So go on with my question, and you've mentioned it a couple of times, so I might have a guess on what it is. You have all these categories of cars, you know, the micro cars, the floating cars, the aero cars, the, you know, the propeller-powered cars, um, What's your favorite group? Is there a favorite group? Favorite groups? Something that you
2: really, you know, when you see it for sale, you've got to add it to the You know, my favorite group would be the microcars because they they did a lot of really interesting things. Now, a a lot of them weren't successful, but I think, you know, when the microcar people kind of got going after World War II, The the micro car kind of evolved because of economic hardship. And so the only criteria was it had to be cheap to make and it had to be cheap to run. And there really were no other back then rules. Right. So they had all these ideas about how to do this you know like some cars you use a motorcycle engine and you wouldn't have reverse so they were two-stroke engines so they could put a different set of points in it to change the timing and start the engine up backwards and that's how you got reverse the Roven d4 that has it has you know we're on the phone but if i could show it to you you would understand so the the window um it's it's a piece of pane of glass and it kind of it flips down into the door it's one piece, and then to, to, to roll the window, it doesn't really roll up. You flip it up, and it's got a little flange, and then the window's up. I mean, it's a just a beautifully simple solution to having a window, right? Now, the only – the downside is you can't put it up and down when you're moving because it, it flips up and where your body is when you're sitting in the car, right? So you'd have to stop to put it up or down. But, you know, the microcar people, they did a lot of that stuff. As times got better, a lot of it just didn't really matter. But they really put a lot of thought into that. You know, the PLP 50, they did a lot of crazy stuff. But in some of it successful and some of it not. But so I would, I would pick the microcars as, as kind of my favorite grouping
0: not, not that you need my justification, but I can see that because it it's something I don't think Americans understand is, you know, really how small these microcars were. I mean, there's always the famous scene with um Jeremy Clarkson driving the uh, peel through the off you know, the offices at the BBC mm-hmm. Um, and I heard heard a rumor from a, a couple couple British friends that I have that they actually wanted to use a, a Sinclair c5 which I know you have in your collection also and I absolutely like because it's has lotus ties. Mm-hmm. Um, that they wanted to use it, but all the Sinclair people said, no, we're not going to let Clarkson drive a Sinclair. They'll destroy the reputation. Um, But, you know, it's, you know, and the Sinclair C5 is the smallest car ever approved for legal road use in uh, Great Britain. It's really not much more than a recumbent bicycle because that's what Mm -hmm, it is. (laughs) mm -hmm. So um, it's been, you know, kind of great just to touch, touch base and talk with you and get a little bit more feeling of the museum time i visited you were firing up um gyro car, oh, okay,
2: yeah
0: um took some time yeah he took some time and chatted with me and my fiance as we were we were up there for some other things and showed us around showed us the restoration shops and it's nice you know you didn't know me from the you know jack and i didn't say anything or push anything and it was just you know we got in conversation and knew you were very approachable and you know that that's always nice you know, that you'll take times with the patrons and uh, answer some questions and that i'm sure everybody wants to talk to you and when they see you because you have some distinct qualities about you that you know make you very easily identifiable thank you for taking the time then and you know again thank you for taking an hour out of your day today to you know chat with you know, two guys in Alabama with, a, you know, actually there's four of us that have this podcast, but two of us this morning forward to, to visiting. And maybe Sean will talk to you about coming up and we'll shoot a feature. Yeah, on yeah. <laughs> I would
1: love to do that. I yeah. would absolutely. Once once we get past what we're going through right now and whatever the new normal is, I mean, when we get to that, um, if, if you're open to it, Jeff, I, I would... The more I look at the website, the more I'm like, how have I not been there? <laughs> like this, Yeah, absolutely. Your, your collection aligns with yeah, it aligns with the, the car geek inside of me in a big, big way, man. It's uh like John said, thank you so much for taking the time this morning. I oh,
2: appreciate it's my, it greatly. My pleasure, my pleasure. And I you know, I I want people to know that I am approachable. So, you know, I mean because if, if you see me and and I'm wandering around, I mean i I'm, I'm probably looking at something. But I mean Feel glad to come up and say hi to me. I mean, I see some people there look like okay, you know, you better not say the hi to him. he's whatever, whatever. But you know, I I love talking to people about cars. I mean, it's 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 fantastic.
0: Well, there's uh, like I guess there's just so much to talk to you about, and so much on display at the museum. Everybody, you know, look up the lane. You're you know, you're on Instagram at the Lane Museum. Website, you know, lane motor org. We'll have some links up on the No Driving Gloves Facebook and we'll throw some pictures up on uh, Instagram and that. I actually have pictures I own so I can do that on Instagram without having to steal from anybody and,
1: uh, uh, you know,
0: Jeff joined us via phone today, so the video feed on this podcast won't really his, have him. You'll just have Sean and I's beautiful mugs bouncing yeah, back and forth. but
1: you'll have forth. cool microcars behind John and an AutoZam behind me in the, in the <laughs> video feed. so, so. <laughs> Be
0: sure to swing by, look up the lane, order his book. We'll put a link to that up on the, the website and the, uh, the Facebook
2: page, too. And
0: swing by and see him. And, again, thank you, Jeff, for taking a, a time out of your
2: day for chatting That's with us. My pleasure. Morning. Enjoy talking to about cars and other things. So. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Thank you. <laughs>